there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. The National Young Writers Festival is really unique because we're all young people creating and curating for other young people. We wanted this festival to be interactive. We wanted people to happen across other people that they maybe had never met before, never thought to meet before, and that's sort of the playfulness of it. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the National Young Writers Festival, supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales, with Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. I was so scared coming from Brisbane to Newcastle for this Writers' Festival I'd never been to. I didn't know anyone. Everyone was so lovely. Everyone's full of ideas and nonsense and everyone's excited for whatever you're doing. And even if you do a terrible job of it, they're like, no, but you tried and it's really great. For something different, this session is a podcast presenting a podcast. Nailed It with James Colley, featuring the stand-up comedy of Eamon Mara, Chloe Escott, Roger Meddy and Alastair Baldwin. You are bound to get a good laugh with this one. And if you find this funny, check out all the other Nailed It episodes by subscribing at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. All right, everybody, that seems as good a time as any to kick off. Uh, Before we begin, as always, the one thing that we do seriously at Nailed It is we like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land before we continue. Uh, Here we are with the Awobakal people and the Waramai people, so thank you very much for having us here. Uh, My my partner's uh, Larakia Tiwiwobud, and she always talks about the importance of welcoming the countries being not a magic spell that makes the racism go away, but instead something that means you're truly acknowledging where you are and the privilege you you have experienced to be here. I uh, think that's a very important thing to talk about. And the best example I've seen of this is a um, dear friend of mine who was giving a welcome to country and she was a little nervous, she was a little off script and um, was talking about her own, uh, what she felt as a settler privilege and um, how she was dealing with that fact. And her welcome to country ended up being this. It was, so sorry... But thank you? (laughs) And I think that sums it up beautifully for me as well. Um, Other than that, I should say that the rest of this show will be bullshit. Uh, Shout out to anyone upstairs just looking for a public computer to use. Uh, Good luck. And uh, to any children trying to study in a library, your parents have made a severe miscalculation. Uh, So if anyone doesn't know this show, and why should you, uh, this is a show where we get fantastic writers and comics to deliver deliberately shit think pieces. Okay, so like what we're thinking, and I haven't checked who's in the room, so if one of these scopes is aimed at you, I don't care. Uh, We're looking for the kind of piece that Mamma Mia is like, "Eh, a bit naff. Like we won't say the Herald Sun to be like, okay, come on, there's two sides to this story. That's the kind of thing we're looking for. We're looking for the kind of statement that would lead half of the ABC board to resign. That's the type of piece we're doing. Uh, What we do have to say is, as part of that, we will have writers saying things that they don't believe a lot of the time here. They're often playing characters or in some way or another satirising an idea. Now, we used to not 
say that at the top of a show, but God damn, you seem like an asshole if you don't explicitly mention it and someone has just come in thinking, oh, there's a talk on. <laughs> Ooh, this guy's a prick. And seems to contradict himself about every second sentence. He could write for the Australian. Um, So that's what we're doing. The other part we need to mention about tonight is we record this for a podcast. Nailed it. If you enjoy tonight, you can go listen to like the 80 episodes that are already up there. Uh, But what it does mean is that you are the sound of the audience, as you know, but the audience listening at home. Your laughter fills in the gap for poor fuckers on a train Monday morning who don't get the long weekend in Newcastle. And if they laugh on the train at the good jokes, they're going to seem batshit. So you have to laugh for them, react for them, do whatever you feel, but do it out loud because, frankly, we're here and if you are all just silently nodding, it creeps me out. So, There we go. Perfect. Thank you. Um, So we have a a lot to get through tonight. We have a wonderful list of guests, so I will not take up too much of your time up the top. But just before we do, uh, let's mention some of the pieces that we won't be hearing tonight. Of course, this is traditionally, we can never get to everything at a Nailed It. Uh, So we have a couple that just weren't able to make the cut. Um, Here are the pieces we won't be hearing Australia needs at least 40 more books about toxic masculinity in beachside towns. (laughs) The best Harry Potter book is Harry Potter and the author's complete inability to shut the fuck up. (laughs) How to stay motivated and achieve your goals in the game you play on your phone instead of writing. (laughs) No, it was not nice to e-meet you. Putting kangaroos on blast. Just walk, dickhead. (laughs) An entire speech that's just a thinly veiled request for someone to give me a joint later. (laughs) And, oh, wow, so now it's a crime to have a difference of opinion about whether or not I should be nude in a public park. Those are the pieces we won't be getting to today, but we have a wonderful lineup of guests. So would you like to start off the show? All right, let's begin. All right, don't be too happy. It seems sarcastic. (laughs) All right. Now, I just want to note up the top, I'm very brave for doing this. (laughs) No one is met with more reverence in the writing world than Ernest Hemingway, a man with a legacy so profoundly adored by young white men that merely whispering his name on a university campus could cause a poor, unsuspecting first year to self-gratify to the point of dehydration. (laughs) He's spoken of as a godfather of writing, not to be confused with Mario Puzo, who was the writer of The Godfather, another book beloved by men who are angrier than they are smart. (laughs) Like Fight Club, Fear and Loathing, or, if they're trying to fuck you, The Corrections. And... Far be it from me to disparage undoubtedly one of the great writers of all time. But fuck it, let's go goat hunting. Hemingway's a hack. He's a hack. I'm not afraid to go there. I will badmouth someone who died 50 years before I was born. It's called courage. Where should we begin? 
We could start with the mindless aphorisms that writers love to spout to one another like they're wor workshopping ideas for cross-stitch target pillows. Write drunk, edit sober. Surely the live, laugh, love of 20th century writing. <laughs> Write drunk, edit sober. As if the writing is the one you need to drink your way through. Be honest. Write sober, drink because you know you have to spend the next month editing this fucking train wreck. Or, write drunk, edit drunk, self-publish drunk, blackout, wake up on Oprah's book club. <laughs> now, I would love to go through Hemingway's collected works one by one, but that would take forever, and I'm not going to drone on and waste your time. I'm not Hemingway. <laughs> I'll do a couple of drive-bys. Old Man and the Sea? Boring. They never get together. <laughs> At first, you're like, oh, I know how this will go. First, the old man hates the sea, then fate sticks them together, and eventually they realise they're perfect for each other, and by the end, the old man is married to the sea. But instead, it's just a sad prick on a tinny. And if I wanted to see that, I could go to, frankly, any beach. <laughs> for whom the bell tolls? Turns out it tolls for these. Spoilers. And, of course, A Farewell to Arms, which I'm sure, like me, you imagine to be a terrific story about a man who decides from this point forward to only use his feet to complete daily tasks. <laughs> but instead, it follows the vague pattern of all Hemingway novels, which is a genre I'll define as horny during wartime. Or drenched in a trench. <laughs> but for now, I will forego these novels. Instead, I want to focus on one story, his shortest story. Hemingway is regularly credited with writing the saddest short story ever told. And you know it well. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Good. <laughs> Take the afternoon off. The only reason this story is sad is because we're presuming one specific context for this ad. There is no basis for this. The author is dead. For all we know, the full story could have been for sale, baby shoes, never worn, not a baby, shoes too small. <laughs> oh, hell. For sale, baby shoes, never worn, baby got new, better shoes. At least that one makes sense. You always see guys in the casino in old movies saying, baby needs a new pair of shoes. Maybe that was the baby. <laughs> and anyway, how sad can this story be? There's a sale going on. Someone in the Hemingway Cinematic Universe, or HCU, is about to get themselves a bloody bargain on baby shoes. Perhaps the happiest story ever written is, just bought baby shoes, huge savings. Part of the mythos around this story is its brevity. It's so powerful because it's so short. Like life itself, or to give a better example, Prince. Short, but powerful. Yet this argument also doesn't hold water. I can use the same words for a sadder story at half the length. For sale, baby. <laughs> That's worse. It's... It's much worse. It's such an overrated story. In fact, I could easily rattle off 10 stories just as short and just as sad as Hemingway. For sale, juggling equipment heavily used. <laughs> We're breaking up, but my tattoo. <laughs> For rent, baby shoes, that's capitalism. 
You'll miss your parents annoying you. Some are just sad. <laughs> your new boyfriend plays ultimate frisbee. The Bachelor, but it's Shane Warne. Netflix, but it only has scrubs. Look, a puppy. Oh, it's dead. That's a spoiler for Marley and me, sorry. Space Jam simply doesn't hold up. Man nearing 30s attends youth festival. All much, much sadder. We all know in our, hearts and, in our heart of hearts, if Hemingway were alive today, he would have a vlog about how women are ruining Fortnite. He and Bukowski would tag team going on the Joe Rogan podcast to sell brain pills that make you write good. But instead, he's in the canon with Shakespeare, who is also a fucking hack. But that's for next Writers' Festival. Seriously, what the fuck is Cymbeline? What the fuck is... But that's for next time. For now, Hemingway's a hack. Thank you very much. Um, I am very excited about our next guest. I've only heard wonderful things. Apparently, he's already lighting up this festival. So, Eamon Mara is a writer and comedian from Wellington, New Zealand. He has a master's in creative writing from the IIML at Victoria University, has been published in sport and mimicry, literary journals, and performed in the New Zealand Comedy Festival and on TV3's I'm Not Even Trying Rising Stars competition. It did have a name, but it was very New Zealand. He believes everything is sad and funny and nothing is anything else. Please welcome to the stage, Eamon Murr. Right, thank you. Uh, today I will be talking about one of the most oppressed minorities across the world, landlords. <laughs> With house prices across New Zealand dramatically increasing, home ownership is increasingly becoming out of reach for many New Zealand families. The government is responding to this by introducing legislation to make long-term renting a viable option. The over-the-top legislation has included things like obligation for landlords to provide smoke alarms in their rentals, having to fix broken things in a reasonable time, and needing a valid reason for kicking someone out of their homes, a.k.a. the unnecessary and unreasonable political bullying of landlords. This legislation is evidence that landlords have become a marginalised group and an easy target for political bullying, because nothing quite says oppression like the ownership of multiple properties. <laughs> we have to remember that the landlord-tenant relationship is already mutually beneficial. The landlord receives money, and in exchange, the tenant doesn't die of exposure. <laughs> Just like many other mutually beneficial relationships, like paying off a mob boss so they don't burn down your business, <laughs> or a hostage situation. But unlike those examples, with New Zealand's housing stock, tenants are still dying of preventable diseases caused by damp and mouldy homes, just slightly slower than they would be if they were homeless. There have been talks of introducing a rental warrant of fitness, making landlords responsible for making sure their houses will not literally kill people. But landlords have responded by stating if this happens, they will have no choice but to increase rents, unlike every other year, where rents have just stayed where they were. <laughs> Landlords have also stated that it's unfair while property values have been rising dramatically, rent prices have only been increasing by quite a lot. <laughs> Tenants have been getting the advantage of living in more and more expensive houses while only paying significantly more. 
it shouldn't matter that these are the exact same houses that have always been rented because you're clearly not taking into account all the improvements landlords are con- continuously doing to their properties, such as mowing the lawn when it gets too long or fixing some but not all of the things that break. <laughs> Or putting in a new letterbox for absolutely no reason. Like, the old one was fine. It's a letterbox. It worked. Like, our house is literally held up by three bricks on top of each other, and it shakes whenever there's, like, a strong wind. Uh, Can you please fix the foundations, Greg? Um, And landlords also have to put up with problem tenants, causing issues like wearing down the carpet by walking on it. (laughs) Or continuously bugging them by asking their permission to get an internet connection or condensation from breathing too vigorously. (laughs) Landlords should have the right to have a house that appears unlived in while simultaneously being paid by people to live in that house. (laughs) As it is at the moment, many landlords claim that the rent prices only barely cover their mortgage payments, so, so they aren't even making any money from their investments, except, you know, capital gains, which still are untaxed, and the ability to get your tenants to pay 80% of the value of your property. But who counts those? Landlords have stated that the increasing rent prices is the tenant's own fault. Maybe if young people stopped buying takeaway coffees and smashed avocado or therapy to deal with their lifetime of economic anxiety, <laughs> they would have more money so they could pay the landlords more rent. But the issue with fo- focusing on legislative, solu- legislative solutions to the rent crisis or the bullying of landlords, as industry specialists have put it, is we forget about what's really important. Bullying landlords in real life. (laughs) We can all play a part in this, no matter how small. You can do something like spill a coffee on a baby boomer who's wearing a suit. (laughs) Or like licking your finger and sticking it in the air and calling them a fuck. (laughs) Or tapping the back of their ankles as they walk so they trip over. Or opening a bank account in their name and taking it into severe overdraft. Or throwing a rock through their window or breaking into their house and pissing in their iron. (laughs) If If you think any of these actions are too much, take time to consider that late last year, the New Zealand government increased student accommodation supplement by $50 a week, and landlords responded across the board by increasing rents by $50 a week. So next time your landlord comes over for a property inspection, why not duck out for a bit and slash their tires? Now, finally, I would um, like to take time to point out the exception that that proves the rule. Uh, My mum is a landlord, (laughs) and she has an investment property, and while every single other landlord is scum and deserves everything that could possibly be thrown at them, uh, my mum is actually a really nice person. (laughs) Uh, So when you're doing these things, could you please just um, leave my mum alone? (laughs) Because I love her a lot. Thank you very much. It's all good. I'll only be here for a fucking minute. Um, <laughs> uh, can we get another round of applause for Amen? That was fucking great. That is so funny. It makes me feel awful about pissing in your mum's iron. But your pants look great. Um, that was fantastic. I, it actually reminded me of my most annoying interaction with another human being ever, where I had just met him at a party... And about a minute, he was like, oh, are you from around here? Like, oh, I live in this area. I'm actually going back and forth. I have to pay double rent now, and it sucks a bit. And he was like, well, as a landlord, thank you. 
I'm like, oh, well, as a renter, I'm going to eat you one day. <laughs> um, are we ready for our next act? Chloe Allison Escott is an experimental artist based in and taking the wrong lessons from Hobart. She's best known as a hard-edged singer-songwriter solo and part of the mostly unclassifiable punk duo The Native Cats, and occasional performer of something that usually starts a stand-up comedy and takes some wild turns from there. But her reach is still expanding like an octopus from one of those old anti-communist posters. <laughs> 2018 will be one of her years. Please welcome Chloe Allison Escott. Distinguished guests, extinguished ghosts. <laughs> I know that tonight I'm addressing a room of young writers. I know that most of you support your writing career in its early stages by working as a guard in a highly fortified top secret facility of some kind. I know your mysterious employers tell you to stay at your post or stick to your patrol route, but I urge you, as someone who has been around for a while, I am 33 years old, in these divisive times it is more important than ever before that you allow yourself to be exposed to, critically engage with, challenge and most of all, walk towards noises that you disagree with or find suspicious. <laughs> so that I can sneak past you and gain entry to the facility. <laughs> when I started work as a tactical espionage agent in the 70s... <laughs> The culture was so different. It was a culture of intellectual curiosity, a culture of exploring dangerous and confronting ideas about what was and was not the sound of a trespasser just out of view. <laughs> I would hide and I would throw whatever I had to hand, spent ammunition casing, some coins with my face on them if I was feeling mischievous. It would make a sound a clattering sound, and people of all political persuasions engaged with that sound. They would turn their heads and say things like, what was that, and I'm going to check it out. <laughs> Where is that curiosity now? Young people today, when they hear a noise in an adjacent hallway, they find it easier to get offended and refuse to learn anything about it than to leave their patrol route to investigate so that I can silently run over and plant C4 explosives on the radar jammers. <laughs> just last week, just last week I was sitting at my favourite cafe waiting to be served. At the table next to me was what appeared to be a group of friends in their early 20s. They had that haircut. They used each other's pronouns. You know the type. <laughs> I happened to let out a hearty chuckle at the article I was reading in the latest issue of Quadrant Model Aircraft. <laughs> the magazine for people who love endless right-wing culture war and scale model spitfires. 
The youngsters turned to face me and they looked at me with such disgust. They didn't even know me and didn't care to. To them, I was merely the embodiment of everything they despised, simply because I abhor political correctness, because I stand steadfast against the age of entitlement, because I tried my best to distract them a week earlier with the sound of ball bearings thrown into a nearby (laughs) ventilation shaft. And when, they ignore the, and when they ignored the sound, I had to shoot each of them in the neck with tranquilizer darts to preserve my no-kill bonus. <laughs> Just then the waitress came to take my order. I said I would like the pulled pork baguette with fennel and apple slaw and wilted silver beet. She gestured to the menu and said, so you'd like the pork sword? I said, yes, I'd like the pulled pork baguette with fennel and apple slaw and wilted silver beet. She said to me, if you want the pork sword, you have to say pork sword. I said I didn't want to say that, not at lunchtime. She said, what, do you have some kind of problem with the casual conflation of food and crass reductionist reading renderings of sexuality? I said, as a matter of fact, I do, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> there was an ad that used to run on TV in the 90s. A man stands at the foot of a woman's bed, then climbs onto the bed and crawls towards her. They both smile and look at each other with bedroom eyes. It's the 90s. The man is a hunk. (laughs) Just as he is about to reach her, she hears the sound of her clock radio alarm waking her up in time to get ready for work. The creeping hunk was an unfulfilled sexual dream cut short by the demands of capitalism. This was an advertisement for McDonald's breakfast, which she can pick up on the way to work if she chooses negating the need to spend time preparing and consuming breakfast at home, thus allowing her to set her alarm later and have more time to fuck an illusory hunk. (laughs) Now, the order of these events as they now occur every morning is vital. If the order were reversed, if the McDonald's breakfast came first and was then followed by feral coupling with a hunk generated from her own rapacious id... That would be fine. It could almost be said to align with the Catholic notion of suffering on earth, i.e. the McDonald's breakfast, being rewarded on an unearthly plane, i.e. plenty of time to comprehensively fuck a hunk twixt the veils of consciousness. (laughs) But no... She indulges herself first with the dream, then pays the price for it later. She is the engineer of her own punishment. The sorrowful breakfast starts to affect her dreams. The hunk's sweat develops the taste and consistency of hash browns, and his skin takes on the deathly grey pallor of an Egg McMuffin. (laughs) The waitress said, Madam, I have other customers waiting. I said, will any of your other customers deliver you wisdom such as this? I think not. And I said to her, what I say to you tonight in conclusion, young writers, 
which is that I believe all sex education in schools should be abolished and replaced with old VHS tapes of world's greatest commercials, adults only special, hosted by Andrew Datto. Where am I? Chloe Allison Escott, holy sh- <laughs> I have 400 thoughts after that. <laughs> okay, firstly, um, uh, as some, I have to watch ads for a living, it's a weird job, but um, you don't want sex ed to be done through 90s commercials because everyone will think foreplay starts when you get a line of ants and an echidna. (laughs) And they never play that thing to its final conclusion, but if there's one creature on Earth you don't want genital adjacent, I would presume echidna. (laughs) Um, The other thing, firstly, where am I could be the ending of every Nailed It piece, and perhaps should be, but that was so good that I feel that we didn't spend enough time dwelling on Maybe the greatest opening line I have heard in my life. I wrote it down. Distinguished guests and extinguished ghosts. That deserves a round of applause in and of itself. (laughs) I am so jealous of that line. Uh, I am very excited to welcome our next act. He's a dear friend of mine, a writer and editor based in Nam, the guest editor of issue number 38 of Acclaim. This is weird to give your credits. I've never done this before. She was also currently the senior human rights campaigner at GetUp. That's the part that matters. The senior human rights campaigner at GetUp has reduced herself into doing this show. And afterwards, I'll tell you another story about that. But in the meantime, please on the stage, Rouge Amiyu! So when the producers of this wonderful festival emailed me, I wrote them this heartfelt email being like, you know, it's really hard being me um, and having to, you know, fight human rights um, by day and win love by moonlight. And I said, you know, I write about politics. I write about racial justice. Um, I write about gender and all the sexy topics of this day and age that get you $100 a pop. (laughs) And I said, you know, us serious writers, you know, us political op-ed writers need some fun as well. And now I'm really regretting it because... (laughs) We don't actually know how to have fun, and I have three lines on my phone right now that I'm going to try and expand into a piece. (laughs) Not since, and also, I know that this is pitched incorrectly to a bunch of writers, predominantly white writers, because I'm pretty much going to talk about a pet peeve that I have as a Kurdish Iraqi woman who loves food and spends 90% of my money on food because we're a bunch of writers. We don't eat for days on end to try and entice ourselves to reach our deadline. We eat the last little morsel of bread. An egg on me goreng is really, really bougie, but I digress. Not since jalapeno hummus 
pomegranate molasses and dukkha on every breakfast dish this side of the equator have I felt so impassionately hateful towards something. And this will make me no friends. Yes, that's right. I hate Yotam Ottolenghi. Ottolenghi, the dark prince of the Levant, the savior of the vegetables when no vegetable asked to be saved. <laughs> vegetables have felt quite comfortable being ignored and being at low, low prices for us trying to make ends meet. They've been sitting there crunching and munching and being diced up. But now Ottolenghi has brought along his like fancy way of misusing tahine in every dish and has stolen the dreams of all vegetables. Now, every time I stuff a zucchini or roast an eggplant on a gently laid out bed of charcoal, someone pops over my shoulder and says, is that an Ottolenghi dish? No, it is not an Ottolenghi dish. There's a region called the Middle East, which we'd like to call West Asia to try and decolonize. See, I can't be funny right now. I can't help but get into the serious shit. What used to be sesame paste lovingly produced by Kurdish families up in the mountains, hand used, and then my grandma secretly stole and put in her bag and then stuffed a whole heap of herbs and spices, went through Australian customs in a hijab, somehow got through with a handful of other herbs in her pocket, opened her bag without any clothes packed for her six-month stay with us, opened it wide with a giant jar of tahine is now being used for every type of dish. I'm saying salads, I'm saying it in cakes, and I'm saying it in weird breakfast dishes, and I'm saying enough, and I'm blaming Ottolenghi. <laughs> now, white people are telling me that there is a black tahine, an unshelled tahine. No, this is all a scam. All your tahine is shit. Don't go to your grocery store that's like fancy and organic because no, the only tahine is handly, lovingly crafted up in the mountains, up in Iraq. Now you can't even dream of using a vine leaf without someone mentioning Ottolenghi. Now you can't even uh, see a bunch of tomatoes being roasted in an oven without someone mentioning Ottolenghi. And to be honest, I tried one of his recent recipes where there was like a really nice yogurt um, uh, kind of like um, a sauce. And then he like opened up the eggplants and like gently put in like some um, burgle in it. And it was like a really interesting shape because I hate couscous. And I just love that he mentioned, actually, I love Ottolenghi. Thank you. <laughs> We, uh, I'm not giving you your, the intro that you asked for because uh, we just came off a stint writing together uh, for the weekly with Charlie Pickering. Uh, since then, even though that was a few weeks ago, uh, Alice has also uh, been a recipient of the Hot Desk Fellowship, which means that he has to fuck a desk now at the Wheeler Center. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but genuinely, like from the first weeks of the weekly, you know, this Arise Festival, you know, there are so many really talented, really funny, really interesting riders. So it's going to be hard for Alistair to get a start. But try him out tonight and know he'll get better. 
Did I sabotage you enough? <laughs> Here he is, the fucker himself, Alistair Baldwin. <laughs> I am exhausted by the hypocrisy of able-bodied people who complain that I get special treatment because of my disability and yet refuse to go to Bunnings, buy a stainless steel hammer for $4.50 and blast out their own kneecaps with blunt force trauma. (laughs) What sickens me to no end about this generation of entitled, non-disabled millennials is that they will complain about not getting special treatment exclusively reserved for us disabled. And that's all they do. Complain. The passive option. The complacent option. So few take the active steps (laughs) towards a Bunnings. So few spend but $4.50 of their savings on a stainless steel hammer... And so few make themselves disabled by applying the blunt force of said hammer upon their own kneecaps. <laughs> I stand before you today in a pair of TurboMed FS3000 leg braces. Not a sponsor, but I am available. <laughs> Why do I stand before you in leg braces? In a small way, because of Titan-related muscular dystrophy, but in a bigger more compelling way, because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps to become disabled. (laughs) To reap all the sweet-ass benefits. That disabled people in Australia receive special treatment is not in contention. In high school, I got 10 minutes extra time during exams just because I can't hold pens properly. Every fortnight, Centrelink gives me $90 mobility allowance to spend on Ubers just because I fucking suck at walking. (laughs) And unlike abled people, I am legally allowed to utilise the accessible toilet for racking up lines of coke with impunity. These myriad benefits, all for the low, low price of being in constant pain and feasibly dying of heart failure in my 40s, which itself kind of provides the added perk of getting to RIP in peace way before global warming turns this planet into a sphere of hot, dead soup. I was recently approached by an able-bodied friend, which is what I call him, Able-bodied friend said, Alistair, I can't believe that you got a hot desk fellowship at the Wheeler Centre this year, and I didn't. It's so unfair that all anyone cares about now is diversity, and that my project, a fiction anthology about the ocean, memory, and manhood, wasn't selected solely because of that. Do you know how lucky you are? that dying is interesting in a literary context. (laughs) He had a point. All of my career successes are 100% because of muscular dystrophy and 0% of stuff like talent or hard work. It pulled on my heartstrings to see able-bodied friends so worked up. Something medically inadvisable for me is heartstrings and the heart generally are made of muscle tissue. 
So, out of the kindness of my weakened heart, I gave able-bodied friend $5.50, requisite amount to buy a stainless steel hammer from Bunnings, <laughs> to blast out his own kneecaps, with $1 left over to get a sausage sizzle afterwards for the pain. Coward that he is, my friend threw the money back at me. If memory serves, he had said something to the effect of, dude, what the fuck, no. How ungrateful, how indolent. Doesn't he know that the only non-disability in life is a bad attitude? (laughs) Disabled is by far the easiest minority to convert someone to. I have been on this earth for 22 glorious homosexual years and in all this time I have only converted 14 straight men with my raw sexual charisma. That number pales in comparison to the 243 able-bodied people I have with their express written permission crippled using a $4.50 stainless steel hammer from Bunnings because they wanted to be eligible for grant money from Arts Access Australia. (laughs) Mathematically, that means the cost of the $4.50 stainless steel hammer ended up equaling less than two cents per able-bodied person whose kneecaps I blasted in. That's less than one cent per kneecap. The only better investment I've made at a Bunnings was (laughs) buying my worm farm. (laughs) That thing pays for itself. (laughs) Email me at wormjuice4cash at hotmail.com to find out more. (laughs) Now I know what you're thinking. Alistair, isn't there the risk that after I cripple myself with a stainless steel hammer from Bunnings... I might eventually make a full recovery and no longer be eligible for Screen Australia funding set aside to increase the representation of disabled people in the TV industry. You're right. If you're thinking long-term, taking a metaphorical stainless steel hammer from Bunnings to your DNA is a much surer bet than taking a literal stainless steel hammer from Bunnings to your literal kneecaps. That said, it is slightly harder to acquire a genetic disorder after you stop being a zygote. (laughs) But it's by no means impossible. Some methods include drinking liquid plutonium, (laughs) angering a witch, (laughs) breaking into Area 51 and touching a puddle of mysterious pulsating ooze. (laughs) Or you can do what I did to become disabled – Get a hold of one of those cursed monkey's paws and make a wish that you would always be able to get a good parking spot. But then the ironic twist inherent to this Twilight Zone reject prop means that it's the disabled parking spot and you now fully have muscular dystrophy. But whether it's the result of a monkey paw curse or the blunt force trauma of what we can all agree is a surprisingly affordable hammer. (laughs) I think it's abundantly clear 
there's simply no excuse not to become disabled for all the associated perks. (laughs) No longer will I entertain a pity party for every able-bodied person jealous that I beat them out for the non-speaking role of polio kid number three (laughs) in the background of a Miss Fisher's murder mystery. (laughs) With a little gumption, a little courage, you can get your own medically necessary leg braces and enter a brave new world of disability benefits and privileges with literally no downsides or associated discrimination. (laughs) And um, before I end, in the interest of full transparency, I do feel obliged to make clear that this sync piece is sponsored content for Bunnings' new range (laughs) of affordable stainless steel hammers. Lowest prices are just the beginning. Thank you. Alistair Baldwin. (laughs) Proud of you, kid. If any of you would like to read my fiction anthology on ocean memory and manhood, (laughs) it is available in the festival store. Um, Have you all enjoyed the show? (laughs) Can you please show some more love for everyone in the show? What a fucking lovely night. Everyone at NYWF for letting us run this bullshit at their lovely festival. Have a fantastic weekend. Thank you all very much. Bye. If you enjoyed that session of the National Young Writers Festival, it happens every year on Labor Day weekend, so around September 27, 28, I think it is, in Newcastle. For more information, go to their website, www.youngwritersfestival.org and you'll be able to find everything you need to know about the festival itself, get tickets, find out about the artists and we found it to be one of the most dynamic, inclusive and fun festivals we attended last year. We can't wait to be doing it again this year and this year we're even going to be setting up the National Young Writers Festival podcast feed, all of its very own. So keep an eye out for that as well. But in the meantime, if you want to keep hearing the sessions from the 2018 festival and there are some really great ones coming up, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to Rights for Festivals or go to www.rightsforwomen.com and that's the website where you'll find all of the Rights for Festivals episodes including the Feminist Writers Festival, Mudgy Writers Festival, Story Fest, and of course, the National Young Writers Festival. And there will be many more to come throughout this year as well. Hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to like our Facebook page and follow along at Rights for Festivals. And um, we'll hit you up again soon with another fantastic and playful episode from the National Young Writers Festival. This podcast episode was recorded, produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.